1: And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to Slate.com slash Amicus Live for tickets.
0: Hang Up and Listen is sponsored by The Short Game, Esquire Network's new series about some of the country's greatest young golfers and their caddies who just
3: happen to be their dads. A revealing look at how hard we push our kids and at what cost.
0: Watch the full season of The Short Game on demand now on the Esquire Network. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine and this is Slate Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of December 22nd, 2014. On this week's show, we'll talk about John Calipari's Kentucky basketball steamroller, which is destroying every team in its path and could have as many as 10 future NBA players, which is more than the Philadelphia 76ers have right now. Uh, Sports Illustrated executive editor John Wertheim will join us to look at the future of sports television and what will happen when millions more Americans join Mike Pesca in cutting the cord. (laughs) One cord.
4: Everyone, grab a scissor.
0: <laughs> uh, we'll discuss a recent uh, New Republic story on Yahoo! sports writer Adrian Wojnarowski and access sports journalism. And in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we'll assess whether Sacramento Kings owner Vivek Ranadive is crazy, a genius, or a crazy genius. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the book's Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, and the Friday sports correspondent for Pierre's All Things Considered. Crazy, Genius or crazy genius? Neither. None. There are three things there. There are three <laughs> options. So go with neither and be
4: opaque and mysterious about which one might be true. <laughs> opaque and mysterious. That would be the fourth. Yeah,
0: choice. Uh, with us from New York is Mike Pesca, the host of uh, Slate's Daily podcast, "The Gist," with Mike Pesca, the opaque and mysterious mm-hmm. superhero who yeah. protects us who protects us all? From Villains Near and Far. How are you, Mike? I'm looking to become translucent. It's a tough process. It's a journey. Someday. Yeah. We will all be translucent. (laughs) I can't say transparent, but translucent. That would be interesting if... Um, you know, instead of a company saying like radical transparency, it's like yeah. we're pushing radical translucency. All right, like radical translucency, radical translucency <laughs> which is kind of not that, that
4: would that would get that would be good enough. Anyone who buys <laughs> radical transparency would also be even more impressed with radical translucency. <laughs> it's very disruptive as long as it's disruptive.
0: Um, we are going to break shit on this podcast. That's right. We are. We're looking for so an intern for the spring. Somebody will break shit. Maybe not shit. Just somebody who will provide us uh, with research, with uh, ideas, ideas for topics. Um, you should live in Washington D.C. You must be available to come in on Mondays, do some research on weekends. Be disruptive. Be transparent. Um, if you're interested, email us at hangup at slate. dot com. Um, for whimsy watch, there's an obvious choice from last week that we did not discuss, but I feel could be a very fruitful discussion. And that is Andrew Luck praising the guys who sack him, saying great job or what a hit when he gets hit by a defender, confusing defensive players around the league, it didn't really seem to bother Dallas that oh, much. No.
4: They th- maybe they, it uh, egged them on to greater <laughs> examples of hitting. But I liked in that article, I, I was a Kevin Clark? Kevin oh, well, Clark in yeah, the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, I love that guy. Uh, in the Wall Street Journal. And there was a whole bunch of theories, and then, you know, maybe two-thirds of the way down a quote, like, but those who know him best just say this, he's a really
2: nice guy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as an owner of Andrew Luck in and fantasy football, Zero points yesterday, maybe a little less of the politeness and a little more of the, of the, the aggressive quarterbacking.
0: I feel like the luck um, congratulating guys who sack him is the ultimate whimsy watch. I feel like you guys have not honored and appreciated that fact. There's nothing more whimsical than a quarterback uh, praising his conqueror.
2: Or any NFL player praising his opponent in the middle of a game. So, yeah, it's completely antithetical to the to the idea of what the NFL should stand for.
0: I'm not even going to mention Devin Hester giving referee John Perry a shoulder massage during the game because <laughs> it just doesn't me. even come close. Pretty good, though. <laughs> Pretty good. On any other week, any, any other, week.
2: other week, that would have been great whimsy.
0: On uh, Saturday in Chicago, Kentucky led UCLA 24 to nothing with 1242 to go. In the first half. And I don't know if you guys saw the game, but the logos on the floor were so enormous that it was really the worst possible game to go down 24 to nothing because the UCLA logo was so huge that they could not really deny their presence on the court. Yeah, this was in Chicago, Chicago. a neutral site game. Um, it didn't get much better after that 24 to nothing start. Uh, Kentucky was up 41 to seven at half and then 67 24 with 8.55 to go, and then UCLA did go on a 20-16 to 16 run One. to close out the game <laughs> to make it a not-very-respectable 83-44 finish. Uh, Kentucky did not do this with a couple of standout individual performances. Only two Wildcats, Aaron Harrison and Devin Booker even scored in double figures. Nobody played for more than 23 minutes. Um, but this is how Kentucky has been winning all year. They have nine high school All-Americans, and Coach John Calipari plays them in platoons like they're changing lines in a hockey game. Uh, the results are hard to argue with. Kentucky is beating opponents by about 30 points per game, holding the 30% shooting. After UCLA got run out of the gym, Bruins coach Steve Alford said, I don't know in my 20 years coaching at the Division One level that I've coached against a better team, and he speculated that Kentucky has a chance to finish undefeated. Uh, Mike, what do you think of um, the Kentucky approach this year and how uh, it has... Uh, been reflected on the scoreboard. I, I can't criticize the approach, can I?
4: <laughs> seems to be a pretty successful approach. And I think that maybe this will, as much as we had hand-wringing about, oh, they're stocking up with great talent, and sometimes it doesn't pay off. Uh, and then, you know, last year they sneak into the championship. Uh, sorry, they sneak. I don't know if they sneak, but they weren't a very strong team. They were an eighth seed and then... It turns out, hey, look, if they just play together a little bit and are healthy, they can make it to the Final Four. Um, I do think that it's kind of interesting the possibility of the undefeated team will give NCAA basketball a little zhuzh, but I do understand if a lot of people are upset that this could be, you know, the new normal and how do we ever uh, topple this giant. But in general, a seemingly unbeatable team is good, an actually unbeatable team is not.
0: Well, this has come up in women's basketball, right, Stefan, with Connecticut um, never seeming to lose, although they have lost a game this year. Um, This was unexpected for Kentucky because generally they get every great high school All-American. They all go to the NBA. But after last season, a bunch of these guys, for various reasons, either due to injury or a desire to improve their draft stock, came back. And so you have basically two amazing classes of high school All-Americans together together. On the same team, Calipari, um, perhaps as a marketing ploy, perhaps to improve um, the chances of all these guys to get in the NBA, is saying, you know, we're just going to play in platoons. We're going to let everyone play. We're not going to come up with a rotation. I'm like a player's coach. This is a player's program. And this is what's best for the greater um, you know, good of all of these players. And
2: he's right. He's believable. I mean, we watched the documentary that John Hawk did, the ESPN show a couple years ago about Calipari and how he approaches the players. And look, Calipari is just the logical extreme of what college sports have become. He recognizes that getting the best players is what every college recruiter attempts to do. And he recognizes that for these very best players, um, their future lies in being able to play in the NBA. Um, and in this case, this year, with 10 of these guys playing, as you said, Josh, 20 or so minutes piece per game, it's almost the ideal situation for someone that wants to go to the NBA. NBA scouts are aware that they're going to be limited minutes for these players, so when these players are on the court, they are obligated for their own professional futures to really perform at a high level. This is their 20 minutes of opportunity to develop the film and impress scouts and impress teams that they are NBA material. And you know, if we're concerned about overworking college athletes and exploiting them, hey, they're not playing as much. That's actually a good thing for these players' futures.
0: They're getting a great tutorial and practice, too, because the competition that they get every day on the practice court is going to be better than what they get in games, at least against most opponents. Mike, there's another you know, general phenomenon that makes a sport popular, and that's a big rivalry or anticipation of a big game. And Duke also actually has uh, nine McDonald's All-Americans, too, and they have the number one. Guy on everyone's mock draft, Jahlil Okafor, they have a great freshman class themselves. And I
2: think they've won every game by more than 10 points.
0: They've won every game. And so there's going to be a lot of anticipation and buildup for a potential—they're not playing in the regular season, but a potential NCAA tournament game. Um, but the reason I think that Kentucky does actually have a legitimate chance to go undefeated, um, and we'll remember that Wichita State did last year, too, and Kentucky beat them in the NCAA tournament, is that they win because of defense just— an absurdly good defense, holding teams to 30% shooting. Um, John Gasaway wrote about it for ESPN. It's basically the sumo goalie approach to defense. They have, like, three guys who start who are 6'10 and above. They have another guy on uh, on the bench, Marcus Lee, who comes in and um, is, like, a 6'10, 7-foot guy. And you just cannot shoot over these players. They have, like, a fortress around the basket. And it's really hard to conceive of how a team could shoot well against Kentucky if they're not just bombing in threes. This also comes on the heels of Alex Poitras
4: being hurt and lost for the year. The same thing happened, or similar thing, season-ending injury happened to uh, Nerlens Noel a couple years ago. So you could say, wow, how extra remarkable is that, that Kentucky has had these great players go down? Well, that's a benefit of having 12 or whatever it is, nine All-Americans on the team. You do get to rebound from these uh, horrible injuries. But I don't know if it shows resilience. It just shows depth. It's something to note. Ken Palm says that right now, Kentucky's Pythag, is at like 9-7 something? It would be the highest Pythag. I think these things, of course, change as the years go on. But uh, Virginia and Duke are also really up there. So even though Kentucky might seem a team for the ages, if not the decade, I don't know. Virginia, uh, with their weird, weirdly intense defensive style, not just Duke, might pose a problem down
2: the road. Back to the idea of Calipari nurturing these players. I mean, what's happened effectively is that Calipari has made it clear that this is the point of my program. It is to give you a chance to play in the NBA. And even with this 20 minutes per game average for his players, the most interesting thing that I think he does, and this was in a a nice piece by Adam Kilgore of The Washington Post examining Calipari and his methods this season, is that he hired an analytics guy – this year, and one of the things he has him do is recalibrate all of the players' statistics to, to as if they had played 34 minutes per game instead of 18 or 20 or 22, and then he distributes that information to NBA scouts.
4: Wait, can I ask you a question? He hired a statistics guy to multiply by 1.8. <laughs> that doesn't I seem that, that hard. I assume that he has <laughs> other tasks. Maybe a pace of play. Because <laughs> if you played 20, I know how to extrapolate
0: 36 fairly easily. I think it's 34, so you actually have to multiply by by 1.7. Odd number. Odd number. (laughs) Um, We uh, have a sponsor this week, which is the Short Game, a series on Esquire Network. You might remember Esquire Network's Friday Night Tykes. Uh, This is another series about children and sports. Hopefully the Heads Up Tackling program is a little bit more uh, well-taught in the Short Game. But it's a new series about some of the country's greatest golfers and their caddies who happen to be their dads. Every year, more than 1,500 kids from 54 different countries go to North Carolina to determine the next world champion of youth golf. These are 7- and 8-year-olds who follow them and their parents as they compete to qualify in golf's biggest event and win the title of world champion. I am a little bit disappointed that we will never be able to be the world champions of youth golf. But I look forward to seeing which of these children proves his or her medal. graphite? <laughs> Their persimmon prove their, uh, their wood. If a kid wins with a persimmon driver, then I will respect that child. If they don't, I will never respect them. It's a look at how hard we push our kids and at what cost. These were the themes of the Friday Night Tykes show as well, if you'll recall. You can watch the full season on demand. It's on the Esquire Network, and it is called The Short Game. In Sports Illustrated last week, executive editor John Wertheim asked, as more viewers cut cable, What will happen to sports? John imagines a world in which cable channels are unbundled and it costs $30 a month to subscribe to ESPN. A world in which regional sports networks could wither and die. A world... Imagine a world in which regional sports (laughs) networks are allowed to wither and die. Die. The traditional broadcast networks, too, could have something of a renaissance. Maybe that's like our third act, not very exciting movie. Uh, But here to join us, it's been a while. We're happy to have him back. It's s i executive editor John Wertheim. How are you, John?
5: Good how are you guys?
0: We're great um do you have- uh cable?
5: I'm embarrassed to say i do which which I did not realize. You talked to the twenty somethings in my office and and this is like you know this is like having a palm pilot i mean this is a a source of derision that uh I, you still have cable but but I do
0: well, I can't remember if I read it in your story if it was another one um that ninety percent of people in the u s pay for cable. you cannot get 90% of people in this country to agree on anything, like whether Obama is or isn't a Muslim, like whether 9-11 was an inside job. Well, you took two really open (laughs) questions there, Josh. That's unfair. But 90% (laughs) of people pay for cable. So, I mean, you can understand that it's like not going up. Like people aren't subscribing to cable twice. So the cable companies are obviously like, you know, they're seeing the trend line here. It's not going up. But um, let's, you know, stipulate that this is still a very popular Enterprise in this country. So this like,
5: uh, but that, that's the thing: we ninety percent pay for roads. I mean, the, the fact that uh, this is sort of foisted upon us, and, and you can either, uh, you know, get three or four networks or this whole universe. And I, th- I think one thing that struck me is just how wildly inconsistent the cable bundle is, which with the way in which we process and consume everything else. You know, we, we don't buy albums; we buy songs, and we don't buy you know we we buy shoes, but we customize them. The notion that we are are paying for something we don't necessarily want is very much at odds with how we purchase and consume just about every other product.
2: And it's governed by federal regulations. And there are people in Congress like John McCain who have argued for unbundling cable television. And it is obviously incredibly controversial. And the cable companies have gigantic lobbies. But at the same time, they are aware of the direction that the culture is trending. And there are potential solutions here for these companies to try to stay as profitable as they are. It's not like it's not as if ESPN is sitting around going, oh, my God, they're going to unbundle and we're screwed.
0: Well, why don't you explain, John, like how bundling of cable affects the economics of ESPN and of sports leagues, you know, more broadly?
5: Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, sports is really in this unique position with bundling where, first of all, sports are basically what's sustaining bundling that we, we all want our sports program by far and away. It's the most expensive items in our cable bill. Disney especially is able to leverage the popularity of ESPN with other networks. So you, you want ESPN, you're also taking our other suite of Disney programming. And and sports is in this weird place where it is such, you know, for, for reasons I know you guys have talked about a 100 times, sports is such valuable programming because – It is immune to the DVR. Nobody is is binge-watching the the Patriots season. Nobody is, you know, time-shifting Monday Night Football and watching it on Tuesday. It's a big audience, and it's a big audience all at once. So in many ways... Sports is the reason there is a bundle, and this, this thing hasn't eroded faster.
4: Well, I also think it's because sports is an area where it's not true necessarily that the 18- to 34-year-olds reign supreme, that the youngest people are the most important, you know? And so with so much of the rest of uh, cable programming... Uh, They care about buzziness and they care about who's tweeting it. But sports is pretty, sports still, you know, skews a bit older. And there's a reason that so many young people have got away from cable because their parents are still paying for cable and they could borrow those codes to watch HBO. Also, I want to throw out there that between the ages of 21 and 27, 44% of people, 44% of Americans between the ages of 21 and 27 have never sipped a Budweiser. I don't know how that factors in. Is that right? Yeah, they're a, huge, they're a huge sponsor of
5: sports. <laughs> well, the, hell, the, hell with, the hell with bundling. <laughs> Why did I write about right this? <laughs> I mean, sport, sports is also, um, I mean, naming another industry that's so dependent. This TV revenue is what sports are really all about. I mean, this is what is, when we talk about gross revenue, when we talk about collective bargaining and then player salaries, TV revenue is, is sort of the top line item when we talk about Franchises having lines of credit, it's because of the TV revenue that they have coming in i mean if if the revenue model shifts, it's not as though sports are going away, but this has this has all sorts of implications from everything from the individual teams to the players themselves.
2: well, as you point out in the piece john that if if sports are unbundled the 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 people that are going to suffer the most are the regional sports networks because really people don't really watch them very much um and in turn the value of those networks to the local franchises i mean those are you know multi-billion dollar contracts for teams in major markets like the dodgers and the lakers and the Knicks and the yankees um and if those go away i mean maybe in la and new york are bad examples because there's still there's still going to be higher demand there but if those go away um, that's a huge revenue hit for teams, isn't it?
5: It's a huge revenue hit, and I, and I think you hit on it, that the, the Dodgers, I mean, the have-and-have-nots, that golf will only grow. I mean, we, you talk jokingly about a, a dystopia without uh, regional sports networks, but some of the analysts I spoke to, they said, listen, if this was strictly voluntary, if you could buy what you wanted, these regional networks in some markets would have to charge thousands of dollars to individual <laughs> consumers. I mean, you, you look at some of the numbers that these networks are drawing, Sometimes, you know, right now, turn on a regional sports network, and if there's not a game on, it's totally likely that there are fewer than 10,000 people watching, and yet we all pay $3 a month for this?
4: You know, in politics, though, it's called the passion gap, right, which is that a lot of people might be against it vaguely if they think about it, which is sort of the analogy of all these people who are subsidizing your regional sports networks without really caring. Okay, so in politics, that would be the people who are kind of against something. But the people who are for it are so for it that there's always going to be um, an imbalance, you know, where the, the subsidizers will always subsidize the subsidized. And I do think that if... There were a rewriting of rules. I do think that if there were allowed to break up what are essentially cartels, a lot would change, but it would not be a utopia. It would just be a little more sensible to the point where I wouldn't have to give Verizon a 12-hour window, as I am today, between 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. for them to come and fix my phone line, because even though I am a cable unbundler, the only way to get Wi-Fi is to also get a phone line, and what the hell, I'll make it work. I hope they show up and someone's
5: there. Well, that that complicates things too. That uh, you know, Comcast spends more on lobbying than Philip Morris. That that is not uh, that's not the equivalent of your your Budweiser statistic. But that's that's what I offer you today. But Comcast doesn't just own these various networks. It's also the nation's largest internet service provider. So you you have that complication too. But I I just think if we went strict salad bar approach here, and you just you, you take what you want, and you're not you're not paying for this suite of channels that you don't even know you you get, it has it has huge implications. And I think what what Mike said is right. And what we'll have then is that you'll have these sort of bunches where if you want ESPN, you're also going to have to take XYZ, and, and Disney will have the muscle to do that.
0: So I find it kind of persuasive the argument of people like Matt Iglesias and economists who argue that unbundling sounds really good because you know, I pay a hundred something dollars, but I only watch five channels. So I'm paying for all these channels I don't get. But what, you know, the better way to think about it is that you're paying the hundred something dollars for the channels that you do watch. And that if there is unbundling, the cable company will figure out a way to make you pay for the channels that you do watch. And so I don't think we should be worried about ESPN because they will figure out a way and they're very well positioned with watch ESPN which um, is an online service that they could, if they wanted tomorrow, could charge money for and a lot of people would pay for. Um, I just don't think that we're going to get to a scenario. I don't want us to lead people to believe that in unbundling, you'll be able to like spend like $20 a month and you'll get the channels that you want. You'll still be paying a crap load of money and the Way to cure that is to have competition because the reason that Verizon can make Mike wait for twelve hours is because who else is Mike going to get wireless and a phone line from?
5: Right, which we, is I mean that's essentially what the, the lobbyist argument is too, which is this isn't going to
0: change. Well, look, lobbyists. I am no. being paid by Comcast to make this <laughs> argument. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna dispute that. <laughs>
5: Um, what, what struck me in the reporting was just how well positioned ESPN is. When they charge in excess of six dollars a month, and they're in almost a hundred million homes before they've sold their first ad block, before Home Depot is put its signage on the uh, on the college football broadcast. I mean, that, that's already seven billion dollars they've got to play with, which is why they're able to to buy so many rights. And I think there's there's some elasticity there. I mean, if, if ESPN frankly went to thirty dollars, I don't know. I mean, are, are you guys? I'm. I'm I I think I'm still in.
2: Yeah, I'm still in. Um, Is this the kind of conversation, John, that we're going to look back on in five years or 10 years and go, boy, wasn't that quaint and funny that people were talking about cable television and sports and what kind of an impact its demise will have? The FCC recently proposed a rules change that would allow anyone to buy cable or broadcast network produced content and put it on the Internet. I mean, this is all going to change so radically in the next 10 years that I think just the, the conversation about cable might be outdated incredibly quickly.
5: Right. I mean, the, the, the sort of buzz, the sort of catchphrase quote in, in media analysts is things are going to change more in the next five years than they have in the whole history of TV. I think to some extent that's right, that we're, we're going to look back and say, re- remember when we had these linear channels and we'd have a remote control and if, if you didn't get Fox Sports 1, then you might miss a playoff game and we're going to sort of... Uh, we're going to laugh about the old days.
4: Now, before I st- uh, say anything, let me just say Benson and Hedges. Benson and Hedges silver for that smooth-smoking, sophisticated experience. <laughs> um, I think Josh is right. Once the cable companies have shown that they can get this much money, they will get this much money, right? It's the argument about, well, if the Yankee signs uh, all these free agents, they're going to pass the costs on to you. No. Any business that shows that it can get whatever price will get whatever price. So what has to change is not... Not the cable companies saying we're going to charge you less. It's competition being allowed to undercut the cable companies. And th- this is why I think that the over the top um, alternatives or the other ways of uh, cord cutting Uh, Are interesting alternatives I mean when we decry bundling the other thing I'd say is you know when you go to a restaurant you're paying for a lot of things maybe you don't order the thing on the menu that's kind of the most subsidized like if you get a salad you're paying for people who are eating the steak at basically no profit to the restaurant you're also paying for things that you might not even care about like the rent the location of the restaurant what if you get takeout there's bundling if you want to call it that in so many business transactions because I'm sticking up for the cable company but I really do think that it won't be that cable companies will ever charge us less, knowing that they can charge us more. It's that alternatives will appeal to the consumer and force the cable companies to uh, charge less.
5: I think salad bars exist only for metaphorical purposes these days. <laughs> but I, I think some people just have a hard time getting past the notion of the fact that you're paying large chunks of money for you. You're only. I think the statistics are you're, you're only using 9% of the cable channels that you receive. So something's going to shift here, and I think it's just a question of how.
0: All right, John Wertheim, uh, next time I'm at a salad bar, I will think of you.
4: What salad bar item do you think exists mostly in salad bars and not anywhere else? I can think of one.
5: I think radish. What do you think? Chickpeas.
4: That's chickpeas it. That was all I was going to say, chickpeas. Chickpeas, chickpeas, chickpeas. Are cla- like, <laughs> chickpeas are probably 94% salad bar consumed.
5: Home is bundling.
2: Let me say, the chickpea lobby is hard at work in Washington.
0: Uh, John Wertheim, executive editor of Sports Illustrated. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, guys. In The New Republic last week, Kevin Draper examined the reporting methods of Yahoo's Adrian Wojnarowski, who's widely considered the most powerful NBA writer working today. He breaks news on Twitter about trades and signings and draft picks. But Draper argues that he mixes his reporting and opinion writing in improper ways, rewarding sources with flattery and punishing the uncooperative with nastiness Uh, draper also writes that he lets his sourcing dictate not just the topic but also the tone of his writing he cites woznarowski's coverage of the detroit pistons who he wrote about extensively and uncritically praising general manager joe dumars even as the franchise went in the toilet that could be because dumars was passing the yahoo writer information Draper reports that the league fined the Detroit GM $500,000 for passing the writer multiple confidential league memos, and they figured out in a very cloak-and-dagger way, like sending slightly different memos to slightly, you know, to different league sources, and they caught Dumars that way. Very, very tricky. Very tricky NBA. On the other side, Wojnarowski has never had anything nice to say about LeBron James a player he has apparently never had much access to, although he did once write a column claiming that LeBron might join the Detroit Pistons. (laughs) In which case, he'd have to be nice to him. (laughs) Stefan, what did you make of the case that Kevin Draper argues that Wojnarowski is compromised, that... Some of his information is not to be trusted and just about his reporting methods in general.
2: Well, I think the, the main takeaway is that this is how more and more sports journalism is conducted. And more and more journalism is conducted, this melding of opinion with reporting. Because, um, look, it's not news that reporters are used by sources and sources use reporters. It doesn't really matter what you cover. It could be the White House. It could be sports. It could be anything. But what Woj and Mark Stein and Adam Schefter and Buster Olney and Ken Rosenthal and Joel Sherman and other sort of scoop purveyors do, it's kind of hard. I mean, you need to cultivate sources. you got to work them constantly. You have to demonstrate that you're trustworthy. But the best of these these reporters, any reporter that covers a beat that trades on access, the best of them never forget why someone is talking to them and the perils and the conflicts that are inherent in that relationship. And they are careful to avoid the kinds of things that Kevin Draper pointed out. It's out about is reporting in the New Republic.
0: But the difference between Woj and a lot of the guys you cited, the Schefters, Mark Steins, is that they don't have, right. you know, express opinions in the same way that Woj does. And what Draper um, talks about, Mike, is that in, in Raski's columns, you often can't tell what is coming from... His sources and what's just conjecture on his part, like his saying before LeBron went to Cleveland that there's no way LeBron was going to Cleveland. You're like, oh, well, this guy is the most deeply sourced, you know, writer in the NBA. It turns out to be completely wrong. There are so
4: many, there are a few things to break down. And I think you can part compartmentalize the Wojo method. But even to take a step back and say this actually isn't about sports journalism, right? So much can be said. What we're saying now could be said about Politico, can be said about, um, the Washington Post and and Bob Woodward. I think that we maybe should ask what is the value of all these so-called scoops like there was I think a couple drafts ago this happens often. Wojo really nailed every draft pick, you know, 5 minutes before it was made. To which I ask, so what? I mean, it's um, impressive. It builds his brand. Everyone was saying, why even listen to Stern? Wojo has all the picks. But what's the point? I mean, if all you're doing is reporting personnel decisions, you know, a day or two or whatever before they're made, sometimes you're reporting it a week before they're made, but he's not, he doesn't have a high batting average on that. What really is the benefit to the public or to our knowledge, as opposed to the benefit to brandishing this guy's credentials as a guy in the know?
0: Yeah, I had the exact same question. It's obviously valuable for Yahoo in particular, which has to go up against ESPN, um, to have a guy who is known as the person for NBA fans and NBA watchers and even NBA executives to look for and to go to for these kinds of stories. So it's great for their brand. It's great for his brand. Adam Schefter has more than three million followers on Twitter. But when you think about what Adam Schefter does, is there anything that he's reported that you wouldn't have found out anyway? Like whether it was a minute later, whether it was an hour later, whether it was a day later? Think of somebody like Jay Glazer. He actually has gotten things that um, we might not have found out. He actually produced the spygate tapes they had those on fox the videos that might not have actually come out and that is an example of the kind of melding of of you wrote about this Mm -hmm. a few months ago the melding of access journalism and what's the other one called accountability so that's an example of the melding of access journalism and accountability journalism where at least in that case glazer did something that reflected poorly on the NFL.
2: Um, I think think that for both of you guys, the the reason that there's value in this is that consumers have decided that there's value in these ephemeral tweets that people want to know, apparently. I mean, that has created a cottage industry in reporting. People want to know
0: for their fantasy teams. They want to know for gambling purposes. They just want to
2: know because it's cool to know five seconds before, you know, the news comes out. I mean, it's part of sort of the human condition. Grant Brisby wrote a nice piece on SB Nation about going to the baseball winter meetings in search of a scoop and he's not a scoop generator and he points out that Peter Gammons was doing this years and years and years ago and he wasn't alone of course the difference was that it was usually after the fact and that it was usually more speculative um, and it wasn't sort of instantaneous I mean You know, I did this at the Wall Street Journal. You know, people give you scoops all the time. I mean, now the difference is this immediacy. It's the instancy. It's the intensity of the competition. And I would also, to get back to sort of the way some reporters do this, a sort of slackening of standards. Um, the problem is in taking this little ephemera and throwing it out there is that nobody really gives a shit anymore if you hit or miss, if Woj misses 20 percent of the time and he's wrong, um, because it generates hits, it generates Eyeballs, And that's what matters to Yahoo. I mean, there is a lower standard for whether it's right or wrong, because we don't remember whether it's right or wrong, because after the fact, unless a reporter comes along and analyzes every tweet that you've made for the past year, the way Kevin Draper has done with Woj, nobody really cares that you missed because everyone's swinging and missing all the time.
0: Well, with Woj, I mean, Stefan, you say that like, you know, the scorched earth, it's partly to get clicks or whatever, but you get the sense that it's personal. Like with the LeBron stuff, Tommy Craggs wrote uh, in Slate long ago that it's like reading pages from Travis Bickle's diary. Like, it sounds like he just hates the guy. And obviously, there's some, um, you know, audience out there for just negative stuff on LeBron. But it does seem like he's like mad that LeBron people won't Play ball, and so that's the opinion that he that he writes in his his column.
2: Well, look, there have been columnists who have been haters on particular athletes for decades. I mean, this goes back to but the with Skip Bayless, times.
0: It, with Skip Bayless, it's obviously marketing, um, and it's not like Skip Bayless. Is well, mad. was it with people
2: like Dick Young and in in, in New York in the fifties and sixties? I mean, they were also trying to create brand and create name and generate controversy and, and generate readers. I mean, it's, it's just different now. You know, Woj is a pretty good writer. I mean, his, his column work is quite good and, You know, when, when he does a sort of sourced column, it can be incredibly effective because you do get the sense that he understands the business. He understands the, 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 the characters and he's gaining inside access to tell a story about what's going on at a team. And that's very valuable. The, The problem is that they're clearly, like you say, Josh, there is something personal going on with this guy. You know, his relationship with ESPN and sort of tweaking them in tweets also seems to happen from time to time. So there is something about him personally, as there has been with TV personalities and newspaper columnists in in the sports world for for decades.
0: And when the Pistons do actually rebuild and start succeeding, he's going to be way out in front of it. He he would have been right, just way way in advance of everyone else. All right, let's uh, let's do after balls. And Stefan suggested that we look at the name of Dick Young's column, which was Young Ideas, which I feel like has a certain so bad it circles back around to being good again aspect to it i like young ideas uh pesca what is your young idea
4: i like the famous potato bowl the idaho famous potato bowl i think it might be the famous idaho potato bowl as long as you got the word famous and idaho and potato you got a bowl but it wasn't much of a bowl the wmu western michigan uh broncos Lost to the Air Force Falcons. And this game was an ugly game. I don't mean there were turnovers. I mean, it was just extremely aesthetically unpleasing. It was played in Boise on the Smurf turf that the Broncos, not the Western Michigan Broncos, but the Boise State Broncos usually play on. And when you don't have the Broncos in their uniforms complementing the Smurf turf, things seem off. And then the logo of Idaho Famous Potatoes that was smeared by the second half. There was a light rain, but I don't think they painted that well on the field. And both teams were, were sporting Razzy uniforms that just didn't work. Western Michigan, had a pattern and a snazziness to the helmet, but their color scheme was a base white with brown and yellow. And you can't go snazzy if you're going to be a brown and yellow team. It just doesn't work. And Air Force, although they were a nice blue uniform with lightning bolts, it seems like the paint they were using on their helmets was really cheap because a bunch of guys were just torn off, and there was, like, yellow showing. So things were just... Terrible. It was just a terrible, terrible looking game. And then every once in a while, they'd scan the crowd. Like I said, light rain, maybe it wasn't that interesting a game. It started at 3.45, ended at 7.10. By around 6, seemed to me about 38 people were in the stands. Now, the announced attendance for this game was 18,223, and famous Potato Bowls had been getting in the mid-twos, so this was quite disappointing. But I did find someone who has embarked on a project to compare bowl game attendance with the attendance of Texas high school football, the UIL, University Interscholastic League. And so thank God for the famous Potato Bowl for coming along, for just laying in stark contrast how poorly attended some of these games are. So I'll give you some of the attendance figures for the UIL. 6A, which is the big schools, Guess how many people showed up at the championship game, guys? 6A Division I. 46,000. 46, 46? That was Division II. Division I... 52,000. 6A Division II, and the, one division isn't better, they're just, whatever, separate. 46,000. 5A Division I, 40,000. 5A Division II, 27,000. 4A. So we're talking two levels. We're talking the equivalent of double A baseball. We're, we're drawing 20,000 fans to the high school football game. You'd have to go to 4A Division II, which got 14,953, to find attendance that was worse Than the Idaho famous potato stated attendance of 18,223. I think the actual attendance may have beaten six man football for which 5,277 fans of six-man football— remember, they play six-man football because the schools are not big enough to field 11-man teams. And in Texas, the definition is, do you have 11 boys in your school? You got an 11-man team. (laughs) So the famous Potato Bowl with their stated attendance of 18,000 and their actual attendance of closer to 18 has lost to many levels of Texas high school football.
0: What do you think the attendance would be if they played the Texas 6A championship game in Idaho? In Idaho.
4: Well, the, so the two teams that were playing, I was thinking of this, obviously Western Michigan pretty far away, but then I was like, oh, Colorado Springs Air Force, that's not that far away. It is 890 miles away, right? So when, it, when things go out west, our conception of not that far away, it's further away, uh, Boise is further away from Colorado Springs than New York is from Atlanta. However, you put the Texas teams there, they travel way, well, I'd say they get about 32,000.
2: All right, a couple things, Mike. It is the famous Idaho potato bowl. Right. Famous Idaho. Don't know why. The brown and yellow on the western Michigan, I don't know, it's kind of a, you know, it's a tribute to the potato, Right. Sort of oh, like a cheese fry I didn't think thing I didn't, or a Belgian fry with a nice poupon on the side with your fries. Yeah. Poupon color for Western Michigan. The Air Force uniforms, they look like they were like the same color as the turf, like identical. Like you couldn't distinguish the players. It was like they would sink into the turf after they're tackled. Yeah. That's why
0: the that helmets.
2: That's why the scrappy
4: helmets with the bright yellow yeah. underneath were, I guess, necessary.
0: Yeah. All right, Stefan, what is your young idea?
2: Well, like any good totalitarian outfit, the National Football League employs self-aggrandizing language, in its case designed to propagate the idea that it is a great and noble state recreation, a moral bulwark against social laxity, an omnipotent cultural force run with militaristic zeal and nobility of purpose. Roger Goodell... George Orwell, I think the parallel is pretty clear there. (laughs) NFL newspeak has always been comically exceptionalist, but under Goodell, I think it's got even more extreme linguistic deadweight being a hallmark of repressive regimes. More NFL announcers seem to use football unnecessarily in both nounal and adjectival settings. They refer a lot to the quarterback position, but no bit of NFL newspeak has gotten a bigger workout lately than the shield. The shield, of course, is the NFL's logo. It was introduced in 1940, shaped like a shield, patterned after the American flag with red, white, and blue stripes and a bunch of white stars and a sea of blue. It was redesigned in 1960, 1970, and 2008 when Goodell called it the envy of the sports world, because I'm sure Major League Baseball and the NBA, which also have red, white, and blue advertising symbols, are mad with jealousy over the NFL's red, white, and blue advertising symbol. In any case, Goodell has talked a lot about protecting the shield, so that got me wondering whether some Frank Luntz type, or maybe Frank Luntz himself, told Goodell that shield conveyed strength and seriousness, or maybe that the use of shield as a stand-in for the NFL predates the ginger hammer. So I asked my lexicographer friend Ben Zimmer, who contributes to Slate's Lexicon Valley podcast, for an etymological hand. And here's what we found. The oldest pre-Gadell reference to Shield that I discovered was from a 1941 New York Times story on new uniforms for NFL referees. For cold and rainy weather, the outfit includes a Mackinac-length coat corresponding in design, color scheme, and number with the shirts. Those desiring headpieces must wear the official cap, which is white, with the National League Shield in front. New York Times sports columnist Dave Anderson seems to have been the first to pick up on the idea of the shield as not just a shape, but as a symbol. In 1974, Anderson referred to that segment of society that genuflects when the National Football League shield is flashed on television. In 1978, he wrote, with its red, white and blue shield, the NFL likes to project an image of the American way. But some Siberian salt mines probably have a stiffer honor code. In a 2001 story about the NFL banning do-rags under helmets, the Times said that Jets coach Herm Edwards told owners about pride and of making the shield of the NFL stand for more. Goodell has run with the shield as a metonym for a righteous, powerful, and disciplined-minded NFL since he took over in 2006. When he pitched owners to hire him, according to an account in the Times, Goodell said, you have an incredibly strong brand, the NFL Shield, and the 32 individual club brands with a massive audience. In March 2007, in a fawning USA Today story headlined, Goodell tougher than the average ex-preppy kid, the commissioner reminded owners that it's all about the shield. The AP wrote a couple of weeks later, Roger Goodell calls it the shield and he wears it proudly. He defended the NFL shield as powerfully as any commissioner can by suspending Adam Pacman Jones for a season and Chris Henry for eight games. Shield. Strong. Last year before the Super Bowl, Goodell equivocated. I'm proud of our players. I'm proud of what they do. But we always have to make sure that we're reflecting positively on the shield. Giants co-owner John Mara told a reporter, one of the things I admire about Goodell is that he always wants to do the right thing and protect the game, protect the shield. But for all of the hundreds of media mentions linking S.H.I.E.L.D. and Goodell, there's evidence that the commissioner borrowed the locution. In his 2008 autobiography, Pittsburgh Steelers only Dan Rooney wrote, Jerry Richardson always says, protect the S.H.I.E.L.D., the NFL logo. Jerry Richardson always says, Richardson is the owner of the Carolina Panthers for years and years, I think since the team actually joined the NFL in 1993, he has had the NFL's and not the team's logo painted at midfield. All right. Now, since the Rice and Peterson stories have basically, you know, have made the shield kind of a, a useless phrase, I think what we should do here, change the shield. What do you? Pesca, I know you like the word escutcheon. <laughs> should we go with escutcheon, the NFL escutcheon, exalt yeah. the
4: escutcheon? Why not just a symbol, a sigil, and it could be Goodell, Dexter flank,
0: pointing to the hoist. The part that I don't understand is if you need something to protect the shield, then what's the point of the shield? Of the shield, right? You're just going to have another shield to protect that shield and another shield and another shield? The shield should be doing the protecting, not being protected. Of like a little tiny shield behind the big shield? It's a confusing phrase. It's like a
2: mirror, like two mirrors facing each other. They're shields. And Goodell's a hammer, so we're
4: using the hammer to protect the shield, which is quite the opposite of... Although sometimes when Thor gets in the way of someone attacking Captain America, that does happen
0: indeed Josh, what's your young idea? Suck it, 102-year-old Elsie McLean <laughs> <laughs> Good
2: lead That's some peppy writing right there
0: <laughs> Last week, 103-year-old Gus Andreoni beat McLean's record becoming the oldest person in recorded history ever to hit a hole-in-one Andreoni, I'm guessing, followed tradition and bought drinks for everyone in the clubhouse after his round I just hope he had insurance As the New York Times noted in 2010, many country clubs around the country offer insurance to their members in case they hit a hole-in-one and need to buy celebratory drinks. In the U.S., this is an informal thing, but in Europe, there are companies that offer actual honest-to-goodness insurance policies to cover the costs of hitting a hole-in-one. The company Golf Plan has a junior policy that costs £30 a year for players under 18 and reimburses up to £50 for the cost of non-alcoholic drinks. And the business, this is what we call a bad deal on very many levels. Hole-in-one insurance is most popular in Japan. A 1997 AP story claimed that 4 million golfers in the country had it at that point. Um, According to the AP, Kiyohe Mutual Fire and Marine Insurance Company started peddling the policies in 1982. And that $65 a year will get you $3,500 in coverage with golfers spending an average of $1,750 on gifts for their lucky friends to celebrate the blessed occasion. There's another kind of hole-in-one insurance, the kind that courses or charities buy to protect them when they're running a contest, where someone wins a car or something else if they hit a hole-in-one on a particular hole. There are a bunch of companies who sell these policies. I found uh, great golf events. If you have a $50,000 prize between 101 and 144 players, that policy will cost you about $1,490. But as you can imagine, Stefan, it can go horribly wrong for you in the hole-in-one insurance game on both the selling and the receiving end. A, a guy named Kevin Kalinda was sentenced to 86 days in jail this year for selling hole-in-one insurance without a license. And for refusing to pay out when a hole in one was made, playing the scam allegedly in twelve states using such business names as Golf Marketing, Golf Marketing Worldwide, LLC, Golf Marketing Inc., Hole in One, W O N dot com, and HoleInOne.com One.com Worldwide. On the other side, uh, the New York Times reported in nineteen ninety nine that a guy named Keith Lewis hit a hole in one at a New Jersey tournament who supposedly won a Cadillac Catera. A week later he was informed that the car for the giveaway had been parked on the wrong hole and that the contract with the insurer stipulated that it should have been on number five rather than number seven where Lewis hit his hole in one. Lewis's lawyer, who is an expert in the art of analogy, said, it's like telling a child if you get all A's on your report card, we'll let you have a TV in your room with a Nintendo. Johnny gets all A's on his next report card and the TV goes in there. Two days later, they take it out saying, oh, we met you had to get is all year long. Very needlessly complicated analogy. Nevertheless, a judge uh, ruled in favor of Lewis a year later, and he got the car's cash value, 36,870 bones. Automotive News reported this year that a golfer in Sacramento named Alan Ross hit a hole-in-one in a tournament that was advertising a $66,000 Kia sedan as a prize. He actually only won a $25,000 gift certificate because that was the largest amount the hole-in-one insurance policy would cover. There was much uproar. There were, there were uh, on-your-side type reporting in Sacramento. People were outraged. And eventually, the general manager of the dealership agreed to just give the man his Kia. And then two years ago, a retired meat department manager named Donald Byerman in Illinois hit a hole-in-one at a tournament sponsored by a church – They were advertising an $11,000 pebble beach golf vacation for four, but U.S. hole-in-one insurance company refused to pay because the hole was only 149 yards long, while the policy required it be at least 165 yards. Last year, Byerman won a judgment against the church. They had to pay up the $11,000 he'd been promised. So the case law here is pretty clear. Judges are going to side with the guy that hit the hole-in-one, not those weaselly churches, the insurance companies, or whoever else who's trying to get out of paying for a prize.
2: I thought that afterball was going to be different. I thought you were saying, suck it. I thought it was a 102-year-old NFL fan goes to a game, <laughs> because the and New York Times had a lovely story by Andrea Elliott about her 107-year-old grandmother, whom she took to a Buffalo Bills game.
0: I think all 102-year-olds just know that I'm not on your side. There's always <laughs> going to be somebody older doing something more impressive. <laughs> so get older, or you have no, no love for me.
4: I like the uh, concept that you just threw out there without commenting upon unlicensed hole in one insurance. <laughs> Who is the agency that licenses this? Is there a secondary market in hole in one Don't we need insurance? to get the government out of licensing hole in one This could be the derivative. next financial What is the crisis? worst tranche of hole in one insurance? <laughs> this
2: could bring down the country.
0: It could. All right, I usually bat last in these situations, but our intern Chris Laskowski, gets his last week. We want to celebrate him. He's done a great job. And so he is going to have some young ideas of his own. Chris, welcome. Uh, what is your young idea?
3: Last week, President Obama announced that the United States would reopen diplomatic relations with Cuba. Many hope that closer to U.S. Cuban relations will improve the situation on the island. Major League Baseball teams were so excited to help that shortly after the president's announcement, the league office had to, according to the New York Times, send a directive to its 30 teams pointing out that it remained illegal to scout players in Cuba or to sign them. Fifteen years ago, as part of President Clinton's efforts to improve the country's relationship, the Baltimore Orioles played the Cuban national team, and over dinner in Havana, Fidel Castro, again, according to the Times, Regaled then-Commissioner Bud Selig with tales of Cuban baseball and fantasized about what would happen if the United States and Cuba normalized diplomatic and economic ties. This shift to engagement was a major change from baseball's strident foreign policy of the Cold War era, when according to historian Ron Briley, quote, Commissioner of Baseball Ford Frick insisted that the national pastime would indoctrinate youth on the virtues of democracy and remain a proud part of our ideal way of life. And so in 1950, it was natural that U.S. Ambassador to Venezuela, Walter Donnelly, turned to the Chicago White Sox, slick-fielding rookie shortstop Chico Carrasco to improve America's image in his homeland, where U.S. support for the military dictatorship was not popular. Carrasco was the embodiment of the pre-Ripkin era, all-glove, no-bat shortstop. But there was something about Chico that made him instantly likable. By 1951, in just his second se- season... Chico became the first Latin player to start an All-Star game, winning the fan vote over New York Yankee legend and rating AL MVP Phil Rizzuto. And after that season, the White Sox reportedly turned down the Boston Red Sox trade offer of Ted Williams for Chico Carascal. On July 16, 1950, just a few months into Cariscal's rookie season, Ambassador Donnelly tried to tap into that popularity by sponsoring Chico Carascal Day at Yankee Stadium. The Venezuelan government lavished Chico with expensive gifts, and Chico, on behalf of the Venezuelan people, presented Yankee manager Casey Stengel with an enormous trophy. In a 1951 article in Collier's, Ambassador Donnelly said, The reaction to the trip was terrific, and I honestly believe it was a severe setback to communist propagandists in Venezuela. But any success of this baseball diplomacy was probably more about baseball than diplomacy. In 1958, Venezuelans welcomed a tour of Major League players organized by Donnelly, but the same year protesters also pelted then-Vice President Richard Nixon's lemma with rocks. Chico, on the other hand, was a beloved figure in Venezuela, inspiring Venezuelan shortstops from Hall of Famer Luis Aparicio to Ozzy Guillen, who teared up at a press conference when speaking about Kara Skell's death in 2005. I know Chico as the manager of the fictional Pittsburgh Pistachios, the star of bedtime stories that my dad told me every night. The story started, as most great parenting moments do, on a whim and a memory of a distinctively named middle infielder from childhood. But they gave me and my brother a glimpse into our dad's childhood. I've continued the stories with my own son, sharing Jack Bracanti and Mike Schooler as my dad shared Chico. Over the last year, I've had many reasons to reflect on moments I've shared with my dad, and lots of them, at least on the surface, center on sports. Birthdays in the Kingdom, dinner at the Frankfurter before Sonny's games, a pilgrimage to Fenway Park. So while there have been lots of reasons to question being a sports fan this year, those small shared memories are, for me, what it's all about and the reason I keep coming back. So thanks, Chico, for your service, and more importantly, thanks, Dad, for everything. And sorry for cheering for the Yankees for so many years.
0: And thanks to you guys. This has been a lot of fun over the last uh, several months. So Chico Carasquel saved uh, America from the communist scourge, saved families, brought families together, um, kind of the most important figure in American history. I, I, don't, I don't think that's an understatement at all, Josh. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. Thanks a lot. All right, we love your feedback when we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hang subscribe to hang up and listen to itunes you can find us at itunes.com slash slate podcasts and when you're there leave us a comment and a rating become a fan of hang up and listen on facebook at facebook.com slash hang and listen our intern is chris leskowski thank you chris for the final time hey. our producer is mike wolo our managing producer is joel meyer the executive producer of slates podcast is andy bowers Remember elmo Beatty, and thanks for listening